Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know we've been going through a season of peace. Now, it doesn't seem like it in light of what's happening in the world around us. And I think it's interesting that um, as we felt led several years ago uh, to go through the fruit of the Spirit each year, uh, taking one fruit of the Spirit as our theme for the year, it's been interesting to look back and see how God has not only used that, but how ironic the circumstances surrounding those themes have been for the years that we've gone through. In 2018, we, we talked about what that looked like going forward. In 2019, we, we spent the whole year in a theme of love. We learned as we went through Scripture where evidence of God's love was from Genesis to Revelation. It was eye-opening. Last year, defined by pandemics and civil unrest, was a year of joy. Love, joy. Here we are six months into 2021. And our theme has been peace. And one of the things uh, your staff, your ministry staff uh, and administrative staff did this weekend, we got back yesterday, we went away for a a retreat uh, about two hours away from here. And the retreat that we had laid out with an itinerary and agenda about how we were going to accomplish certain things over the weekend really got blown out of the water because as you would hope would happen with your pastors, the Holy Spirit showed up in a way that we didn't anticipate. Should we have been anticipating it? You bet. But even pastors get stuck in the mode of going through the routines of ministry. And I was wrestling against myself, realizing, oh shoot, there's so much stuff we need to cover. In the very first day, which was Friday, when we started to try to hammer out details, we just couldn't. So we didn't come back with some grand plan of where we're going in the next five years. And some of you at hearing that will probably be, well, shoot, I guess this isn't the right church for me. But what we did solidify is foundationally whose we are and whose leadership we have to follow. We talked about calling, anointing, and harvest over this weekend. But I'm telling you now that it was more substantial than anything we could have created in and of our own strength and power. You can rest assured that the team of leaders in this church are better for having met with the Lord together in that place. That was holy ground this weekend. It also confirmed for us, having looked back over the past couple years as we've been plowing through the fruit of the Spirit, that we have been in the center of what God desires for this church at this time. He's teaching us in ways that otherwise we would have been blinded to. See, in order to be believers in Christ who live out this calling of faith in our lives, we have evidence of the Holy Spirit in us when we produce the fruit of the Spirit through us, or when he produces it through us. We talked about what production really is. It's not lights, whistles, certain songs, or your favorite songs. It's not any number of things like that, but it's rather a production through difficulty. Producing something requires time, energy, sweat, and sometimes blood and tears. 
A tree, in order to produce any type of fruit, requires a certain level of cultivation, the right environment, a place where roots can grow deep enough to reach the soil and the nutrients and the water below the surface when drought comes. Producing fruit is not easy, but it's necessary for the body of Christ. But you can't do it apart from Christ. Nor can you do it apart from an infilling of the Holy Spirit, whom we talked about in my class this morning, many in the church refuse to talk about because they're afraid. Because truly, if the Holy Spirit were to show up at any given service, on any given Sunday, or any other venue where God's people gather together, if he were to truly show up in the way we sing and pray that he would, it would clear out this room of those who were not serious. Because to stand in the full presence of the Almighty God is not a thing that does not strike a holy fear in you. We live in a day and age right now where there's a stark dividing line in our culture. And I'm not talking politics. I want you to hear me right now. There is a stark dividing line where God has said, okay, I'm going to clearly define for you what I expect and hope for you. I can't make you follow my ways or my teachings. I can't force you into a relationship with me, but I desire it with you. Talked about this this morning in my class, the picture of Jesus in Rome, or Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where here he says, I stand at the door and knock, and if you just open the door, I'll come in and have supper with you. And we talked about the picture that's so famous of this verse, where on that door, there is no doorknob on the outside. I've said this often before, God is not going to bust down your door to your heart. He woos you through the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and conviction is not fun, but it's necessary for a holy people. I want to talk to you a little bit today about punishment. <laughs> Oh, great. I showed up on the day of punishment. Whoopee! Um, as we continue through our scripture, we're in Jeremiah. We've been in Jeremiah for a couple weeks now. And in Jeremiah chapter 46, I'm just going to be looking at verses 25 through 28. Don't put it on the screen yet. But um, we're going to really break that apart and talk about that. This is a small piece of scripture nestled in a whole great amount of prophecy against other nations beside God's own people. Okay? And we're going to get to that in a moment. But I want to talk about punishment leading into this. What is punishment? If we could define punishment or judgment and not in the ways our culture defines punishment or judgment. There is a biblical definition for these things that oftentimes gets overshadowed by the culture's definition of these things. And if there's anything the enemy does very well is he takes words and he gives them new definitions. Think of words in our culture today that don't mean what they used to mean decades ago. Things that used to hold some level of significance in this way, but now have shifted in significance to mean something totally different. So what is punishment according to Scripture? What is judgment according to Scripture? Because when we see this prophecy of Jeremiah and understand that judgment and punishment is coming, what does that mean? How do we understand it? 
I used this illustration before, so bear with me if you've heard me say it, but I think it's very appropriate uh, and giving us kind of a clear indication uh, of what a certain level of punishment looks like. So once there was this man who, who was a golf addict. How many of you love to play golf? How many of you love to hate to play golf or hate to love to play golf? Where you get out there and you're like, oh, I'm going to be so good today. And you, your first drive is perfect. You're like, yeah. And then you, every other hit is really bad. Right, so this guy, he was, a, he was an addict of golf. He loved golf. He ate, slept, and breathed golf. He dreamed about golf to the point to where he would find every waking opportunity to do golf to the neglect of his job. Frequently, he would call in sick, play hooky. Oh, <laughs> I'm really sick today. And he wouldn't just play nine holes or 18 holes. Golf addicts play 36 holes or more in a day. One morning after making his usual call to the office, (coughs) I'm sick. An angel above spotted him on the way to the golf course and decided to teach him a lesson. So he flies over or walks over, depending on your rendition of whatever angel you have in your own mindset. And he says, uh, hey, if you play golf today, you're going to be punished. Enough's enough. Enough of this lying, white lies, no more of this. It's an addiction for you. you got to cut it out. Well, thinking it was only his conscience, he had successfully whipped up in the past this, this justification for doing things uh, like this uh, in his own mind. So you ever have this still small voice in your mind like, you probably shouldn't do that. You know what I'm couple of you chuckle because you know that little voice, right? I don't think that's the right idea, right? What do you do with that? Oh, oh it's really, it's not, it's not my conscience. I mean, I mean, or it's just my conscience. I'm just feeling guilty. Sometimes it's God who's saying, hey, I, I, I don't want you to do this, okay? He said, I've been doing this for years. Sorry. (laughs) No one will ever know. No one will be the wiser. I promise you, if I go out and do this, it's not going to be that big of a deal. So the angel said, no more. And the guy stepped up to the first tee. He promptly whacked the ball 300 yards straight down the middle of the fairway. And since he'd never driven the ball further than 200 yards, he couldn't believe it. A hundred yards further than I've ever driven it before. It's right on the edge of the green. Yet, there it was. He couldn't deny it. It was right there. And his luck continued. It wasn't just one lucky shot. It was lucky shot after lucky shot after lucky shot after lucky shot. By the ninth hole, he was six under par. He'd never been under par. He was a bogey player. There's no way that this could be real. He was walking on air, strutting his stuff. He would walk through, you know, people were seeing him, and he's like, yeah, what up? You know, he was doing his thing. Starting to think about the pros. I'm going to go try out. I mean, if I'm this far under par, maybe I've, I've figured out how to do this, finally, after years of playing. He wound up with an amazing 61. The lower the score on a golf course, the better, by the way. I like to play it the other way around to make myself feel better. But the lower the score, the better. Most, most golf courses are around 70 to 72 par. That means you get the ball in the hole the exact amount of times that you should hit it to get it per green, or per, per yeah, per green. All right? It's near to impossible. Okay? But he was 61. About 30 strokes under his usual game. He said this, wait until I get back to the office and I can tell them about this. (laughs) But suddenly he realized. (laughs) He couldn't tell them. He never would be able to tell anyone. Punishment isn't always violent. 
It isn't always in your face. Sometimes it sneaks up on you and bites you in the butt when you're unaware. And I want to, before, before we get into this, I, I want you to understand, though, not every hardship you face is punishment from God. Okay, let me, let me lay that out there. Because there's this false teaching going around that if bad things happen in your life, it's because you've got some sin in your life. Yes, sometimes, but not always. I mean, we've got one clear picture of this in Job, who said, who, who God said, have you noticed my righteous man, Job? He's blameless. And what happened to Job? A bunch of hardship. So not every hardship is a punishment of God, but rather it's a refining fire that sometimes we go through to shape and mold us so that we're stronger and better and more capable of use for God's kingdom. But this is not what we find ourselves in today. We're finding ourselves in this idea of punishment from God to the people of God and the surrounding nations that God even used at his own disposal to bring about his good and perfect will in that day and age. You see, punishment is a tool of God used in love to refine his people. Do you get that? Judgment from God is a similar tool of his to bring condemnation on his people for the wrongs that they continue to do and they're not stopping. And in order to get their attention, he has to totally turn their world upside down. He has to take away those things that he gifted them in the beginning in order to get their attention that they're on the wrong track. We talked last week about how they were forced into exile for how many years? 70. They were taken into exile by their enemies who were brutal. And we remember last week, if you remember, what did Jeremiah tell them? Settle in. You're not coming home. Build houses, have families, have grandchildren, suck it up. 70 years is a lifetime. So settle in, but don't wither and fade away. Grow, nurture yourselves and each other. You see what happened while they were in exile for a season, they still worshiped idols. But then it dawned on them in the midst of exile, what are we doing? What's wrong with us? Why are we continuing to do what we did that got us in this spot in the first place? Have you ever said that? And so they started coming back to God while in exile as they built families and homes and they prayed for the prosperity of the cities in which they lived because the welfare of that city was also their own welfare, what Jeremiah had told them. So now we come to this God who is also telling the other nations surrounding Judah, the southern kingdom, you guys are all in for it too. He starts to talk to the, 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 the nations of Egypt and Philistia and Moab and Ammon and Edom and Damascus and Kedar and Hazor and Elam. And ultimately he speaks to Babylon. And then we come in the middle of these verses to chapter 46 verses 25 through 28 and listen to what he says. The Lord of the heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, I will punish Ammon, the God of Thebes and the other gods of Egypt. When was the last time he did this that we have in recorded history of the Egyptians? Yeah, all the way back in Exodus, right? The 10 plagues. Do you remember the 10 plagues story? The Israelites have grown to over a million or more in the land of Goshen in Egypt, just east of the Nile River Delta. 
And the new Pharaoh at the time is scared of them because they are more numerous than the Egyptians are. And if they know how more numerous they are, they could take us over. And so he starts to persecute them. And then the cries of those persecuted Israelites go up to God and God hears their cry and he sends a guy by the name of Moses who had been in the royal empire of Pharaoh and ran off into the wilderness because he murdered an Egyptian. God says, go back and set my people free. I'm going to use you. And the gods of Egypt were punished as if there were such a thing. The plagues that come represented the different gods of Egypt. Did you know that? If you go back and you look at the different plagues that struck Egypt, it was striking at the heart of each specific God in their pantheon. To give them a wake-up call, who is the most supreme of all others? It's God, Yahweh. He says, I will punish Egypt's rulers and Pharaoh too, and, I, and all who trust him him. I will hand them over to those who want them killed, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and his army. But afterward, the land will recover from the ravages of war. I, the Lord, have spoken. But don't be afraid. Listen to this. Don't be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Jacob was dead and gone. What is Jacob a symbol of at this point in time? Israel. Because it's through the sons of Jacob come the 12 tribes that become the nation of Israel. And Jacob himself, who wrestles with God in Genesis, has a name change. What is it? Israel, one who wrestles with God. He goes on to say, For I will bring you home again from distant lands, and your children will return from their exile. Israel will return to a life of peace and quiet. And no one will terrorize them. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, says the Lord. I will completely destroy the nations to which I have exiled you, but I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but with justice. I cannot let you go unpunished. What was going on here? Well, you got to look at the campaigns that were going on in that region at that time. Assyria, about a century before, was the main power at the time in that region. He, they came in and took over the northern kingdom. They were a vicious, terrifying, torturous people. They showed zero mercy to their enemies. Babylon would rise to power, but Pharaoh and Egypt would also rise to power. So you got this northern kingdom above Judah, where the Israelites, the remaining ones, are up here building and swelling with more power. They overtake the Assyrians. And then you have Pharaoh down here, who's making campaigns in the southern region, even against Judah at times. But Judah has this idea, and the kings of Judah, some of them say, Okay, the Babylonians are worse. So maybe if we work out a treaty with Egypt, they will fight with us against the Babylonians and we can at least maintain some vestige of hope as a people with a nation. Guess what happens? God says, you don't get it. You're trying to find protection from neighboring nations when you need to look for protection from me. Do you not realize that if you give yourselves over to other people and other places to the neglect of me, you're going to succumb to the same punishment of those same nations that are against me. I will destroy them. Babylon is going to take over Egypt. There will be nothing of them left. 
But even Babylon itself, even if you were to side with them, they're going to be destroyed too. You have to understand that it is me you need to be with. Above all else, there is no one else who can save you. Now, how does that translate today? It's still as viable and as truth-filled and as anointed a word of God as there ever was. Because why? Well, because there are way too many people who put too much stock in their politicians, in their nations. Do you understand And this is not me being anti-American or not a quote-unquote American patriot. But if my allegiance is to America alone, I get to go down with the ship when that goes away. Church of God, you are called to a higher calling and a higher kingdom that will never go away. Whose kingdom is eternal and it is defined by peace. Of his kingdom, his peace shall never end. But we want to side with the stronger one in whom we can see and seems to be going the same way we're going. We can ally with the people in the kingdoms of this world and yet the plight of the people in the kingdoms of this world that are disjointed from God will be laid waste. I am not against any nation who is for God, Yahweh. But most importantly, I'm for his kingdom above all others. You've heard me say this before. Let me just, let me say it again. What kingdom are you a representative of? See, we may not, we, we may not be uh, representatives of the United States. We may say, yeah, I don't really like the United States anyway. Or I don't like this country or that country. We may have developed our own little kingdoms called the kingdom of Brandon. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm for me and nobody else. Guess what? God's saying to you, as he said to many others in the past who rose to a height of arrogance and pompousness, even like King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Oh yeah, you think you built this whole thing? Guess who allowed you to? God says it was me. Don't get too puffed up. And he gets puffed up. But before he does, there's a prophecy against him. You're gonna be wandering in the wilderness for seven years eating grass like a cow. No joke. It's in there. I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up. You got to read the word of God. This king, this mighty powerful king, who's represented in Daniel's prophecies as the golden head of this statue. He is the richest, most wealthiest, most powerful king in that region at that time or any time after that in that region. And he's standing out on his balcony one day, he's puffed up. Look at all I've created. <laughs> I'm sure he did it kind of like that, but in his own language. <laughs> I don't know Babylonian or Sumerian or anything else like that. I just want to make sure you're awake. A lot of history could put you to sleep, you know? And he would quickly find himself grazing like a cow in the fields. Now, the story doesn't end there, and this isn't a sermon on that story, but I love the follow-up to that, because when he finishes his time in the wilderness like a cow, seven years, he comes to his senses, it says, and he goes back. I half believe that he's going to be in heaven someday because we don't get any other indication that he's not. Because when he comes to his senses, he goes back to Babylon. He proclaims the Lord of heaven, Yahweh, is the God of gods and the King of kings. And it seems to lend to the belief 
that he lived out the rest of his days in faithful worship of Yahweh. Here's a key point, and I will quickly close, I promise. Peace is not necessarily devoid of punishment, but it can come as a result of it. How does this play out? You have to remember, God is a God of the whole world. Who created everything? Who allows anything to subsist in the world right now? Who is it that holds everything together? We have a hard time wrapping our heads around that. Well, okay, this world is a mess. Oh, yeah, it's a mess, but can you imagine if God wasn't in it, how much more messy it would be? He allows sin and death to subsist and exist for a time. And yet, he's the one who conquered sin and death and provided us a way out of this mess. And he invites us into that. But we've got to remember he's a God of the whole world. He is still in control. Yes, he allows kingdoms to rise and he allows them to fall. And though we may not understand every detail as to why certain things happen at certain times and why certain kings and kingdoms exist and why others fall, there is a bigger plan and a greater understanding that is beyond our capacity to conceive at times that requires our faith and our trust. You see... This happened in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The Israelites had come into the land. They'd been ruled by judges up to this point. And they start looking at the nations around them and say, we want a king like the other nations have. We want to be like them. And Samuel gets ticked off. But he says, fine, I'll take your plea to God. He takes it to God and God says, fine, give them a king. An earthly king. But give them this warning that goes along with it because an earthly king is not like me. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. See, this was the beginning of the downfall of the nation of Israel is that they rejected the king of kings and the Lord of lords for an earthly king like the other kingdoms had. They wanted to be like the world. Church, when we want to be like the world, we get what the punishment of the world has coming to it. It's just the nature of the way God works. Fine. I don't want that for you. I know if you stay with me, I can be your protector. I can be your security, your provider. All these names of God in the Old Testament, El Shaddai. We've got all of these names that are characteristic of the God who loves us. Who embodied a man we call Jesus who had the title and the role of Savior. The best name that God could ever have. Known by the label of agape. And yet we settle for less. Why do we settle for less as a church? Because it's easy. It's hard to be a citizen of the kingdom of God in this world because the kingdoms of this world are against the citizens of the kingdom of God. So it's easy to go the way of the world. It's easy to ally yourselves with those who are sort of in your camp, so to speak. It's harder to align with God who is countercultural. We want to be with a popular group. We want to be with the ones that make us feel most comfortable, most like us. And so we'll sacrifice, we'll sacrifice really what God desires for us for something less than God. You see, the only true ally we have is God. There is no other ally who is for us. This is why you can say, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not for me, you're against me. You can't be one foot in the kingdom and one foot out. You, you can't be a citizen of the kingdom of this world if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. 
Yes, we do carry cards of citizenship of the kingdoms of this world, but we are not defined by that as believers in Christ. God is the only ally we've ever needed. He's the only ally we truly have. And until we come to a belief in that, we'll continue to to link up arms with other allies that don't have our best interest at heart. Oh, it may feel good for a season, but there are people that have linked up with allies of this world that think they're doing what's right and what's good and that it's helping them out, but it's killing them slowly and slowly and slowly. Number three, God disciplines his people through justice. Let me, let me spend just a couple minutes on this. To paraphrase this version of scripture, um, Jeremiah 46, 28. Let me revisit that. Don't be afraid, God says through, through Jeremiah. Don't be afraid, Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, says the Lord. I will completely destroy the nations which I have exiled, exiled you, but I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you with justice. I will not let you go unpunished. Now, some of you probably are going to get really mad because the version of Scripture I'm going to use next you think is an abhorrent version of Scripture. Deal with it. Okay, the message is a paraphrase of the Scripture. I use it occasionally when I'm looking to see in current day vernacular maybe what that passage is saying. And I love the translation. Listen to this. I'll finish off the godless nations among which I have scattered you, but I won't finish you off. I have more work left to do on you. Let me say that again. I have more work left to do on you. I'll punish you but I'll do it fairly. I'm not finished with you yet. God's justice is rooted in his love. God's love is righteous and perfect. And in God's sovereignty and love, God's justice always holds supreme authority within a world marred by sin. If this were not the case, God's character and nature would not be defined by love, but by something more sinister, thus making God less than God. And though this sounds confusing and somewhat philosophical, the truth and the logic behind this argument stands. God, in order to be a God who is defined by love, also has to be a God of justice. They're two sides of the same coin. And when he punishes those who are his people, he does it because he loves them. Not because he's trying to be vindictive or hurtful or mean or hateful. But because he is a perfect God, defined by love and unconditional love, he knows in order to bring about what is good in the life of the one he's bringing judgment and punishment on, in order to get their attention and to turn them back to him, he has to use these resources at his disposal. There is no good parent out there who doesn't punish his or her child because they want them to be better than what they are. Well, what about abuse, Brandon? You're not, no, 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 no. I'm talking about legitimate, real punishment and discipline for wrongs done. I'm not talking about extreme cases here. I'm talking about the parent who truly loves her child will not let them do whatever they want to do and get away with any number of things. That is a parent who does not love. A parent who loves makes sure that the boundaries are in place, that healthy boundaries are there because it provides not only security, but because it provides love. An unloving parent says, oh, go do whatever you want to. And they think they're doing something good because they've convinced themselves that they want to be their child's friend. But you aren't being friendly to your child when you let them have free reign of everything without punishment. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. There is coming a day when heaven will be the reality for God's people where all sin and death will be wiped out of existence and thrown into the lake of fire and final judgment where there will be no more punishment 
sickness, disease. We will live perfectly and be known perfectly or know perfectly as we are known by God. When that happens, it'll all make sense. But what makes the most sense this side of heaven is doing it God's way because God's way is not only best, it's proven to be true. If you, you've heard me say this. Well, I just don't believe the Bible. I think it's a bunch of bunk. I don't believe there's truly a God. And I challenge you, and any pastor worth his or her weight in salt will challenge you, test it to prove it. If you really, you really, really want to stand on that hill or die on that hill that there is no God and the Bible is just a fictional book, then prove it. Because I believe that if you're truly trying to seek and find out the truth for yourself, God's going to say, here I am. He will reveal himself to you in a way that you never even imagined. He may not give you every detail to every question you have, but he will reveal enough of himself for you to conceive of the reality of his existence so that you can step in faith into his arena. And it's not a blind faith. Hebrews chapter 1 or chapter 11, that definition of faith. It's not about blind faith. It's about evidence of things we can't see. Say this with kids all the time. What is evidence of something you can't see? You know it's there because you can see evidence of it. Well, one of the practical ones is the wind. Look at these streamers behind me. We don't have strings attached to them. We don't have somebody under the stage there yanking that back and forth. <laughs> Come and check it out. There are air vents up top keeping this fat, hot, sweaty mess cool on stage. And you can see evidence of it from the streamers. But there's other evidence, because those of you who are close enough, you can feel the breeze. You can feel the coolness of it. You see, we aren't called into blind faith. I hate it when I hear that. There is evidence to believe in God for those who are willing to see with clear eyes. But we are too afraid to take off the blinders of our own belief system to see with the lens that God provides for us. God's justice is good. His righteousness is good. Consider the words of the psalmist from Scripture as he proclaims the greatness of the glory of God's love and justice. Psalm 30, 33, verse 5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O God. Unfailing love and truth walk before you as attendants. Psalm 101, verse 1. I will sing of your love and justice, O Lord, I will praise you with songs. Psalm 119, 149. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. There's a story told about how Dwight Moody, have you ever heard of Dwight L. Moody? Famous evangelist. At one time in a southern city preaching, about the value of the word of God in a person's life, when suddenly he was interrupted by the loud voice of a man in the audience. I've actually had this happen in Dayton, Ohio, you know, a couple times, fun stuff. Um, Mr. Moody, he says, I don't believe a single word in that collection of old wives' tales you call your Bible. To which Moody replied, my dear man, there is one verse in this Bible that you are forced to believe. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If a man sows wheat, he doesn't reap potatoes or peanuts, he said. Take the saloon keeper, for example. He sows drunkards, guess what he reaps? Drunkards, 
Regardless of what you think about alcohol, consider the time period. At that, the man sat down as the audience broke out into loud applause. Mr. Moody, of course, didn't know this man from any other person in that town, but the audience did. He was a notorious, longtime atheistic saloon keeper, and all his children, both sons and daughters, were alcoholics. The great Roman poet Ovid once wrote, it is less to suffer punishment than to deserve it. Let me say that again. It is less to suffer punishment than to deserve it. You see, God's punishment isn't to harm us, but rather to bring us to a place of understanding. Its purpose is to clearly define the truth and the consequences of our rejection of it. When we reject God, thereby rejecting the truth, we are ultimately doomed to reap what we sow. As our worship team comes forward to close this out this morning, let me ask you, what are you sowing today? What is, what is the extent of your life and what have you sown up to this point and what do you continue to sow? When we're punished, rather than saying, why God, we should remember that his discipline is because of his love for us. The author of Proverbs in the Old Testament reminds us, my child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects his child in whom he delights. And the author of Hebrews who quotes that passage from Proverbs goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 12, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by his father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does, all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we are respected by our earthly fathers who discipline us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best that they knew how. But God's discipline always is good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. I I know some of you are struggling. You're struggling with a myriad of different things. Some of you at home are struggling with different things. You're struggling with fear that has paralyzed you to the point of not moving anymore. You're struggling with hopelessness that has put you in the hands of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy you. You're struggling with addictions that you've tried to break free from and yet you've allied yourself with rather than fully allying with God and saying, no more! You're struggling with anxiety and depression that are oftentimes rooted in in unforgiveness and offense because you're not willing to let somebody else off the hook. You're struggling with identity when true identity is only found in God through Christ Jesus. You're struggling with calling and direction when there is a way and a truth and a life and there's no other way to the Father except through Him. I'm not foolish to believe that everybody comes into this place perfect and nor should they. But I'm also not foolish enough to believe that those who carry baggage into this place should carry it back out with them when they leave. 
heaviness and the weight of the burdens you carry can be lifted. There was a place and a time where that was dealt with and you continuing to carry it and allow it to have control over your life gives the enemy victory over you. When Jesus says, I finished the work. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am meek and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden, the burden I give you is light. Stop playing the games of the world. And surrender to me today. Give up your fight against me and let me fight for you. The only deliverance that is ever going to come that's truly going to set you free is through the cross of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. I can preach till I'm blue in the face. I can believe 100% in the message I bring every week. But it's no good if it falls on deaf ears. But I also believe in a God who says, I will not allow my word to go forth void. The altars are open. Our prayer warriors are willing to come and pray with you. It's on you at this point. Those of you at home, Get down on your knees at your couch, at your chair, wherever you are. God's presence can meet you there. He is the everywhere Father who loves and adores and cares for you. Heavenly Father, as we welcomed you into this place earlier, we welcome you even now. Break the bondage of sin and death over the people in this place. Break the hopelessness, the addiction, the crisis of identity. Break the unforgiveness. Bring reconciliation. Oh God, pour out your spirit upon all flesh in this place today. Let your sons and daughters prophesy. Let a new work begin in this place today, a work that is of old. Let revival come in the hearts and the lives of those here today. As they set their burdens and cares before you, and you give them your burden, which is light. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.